This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Samantha Shannon, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. Uh, Samantha's come a long way. She's actually in person in the office Mm. all the way from London. Yes, I am. Um, It's been really nice. I've just come from the Gold Coast and now I'm here in Sydney. Yeah, it's a long way. Well, not from the Gold Coast, but definitely from London. Yes, it's a long flight. I did the the big flight that goes from London directly to Perth, um, which was like 16 hours or something. Yeah, it was a very intense flight. It is. I do 14 hours. I'm comfortable with that nonstop. But you start to get antsy after 14, don't you? Yeah, well, I really was really hoping I was going to sleep, but I... Bless them, there was a baby and a toddler right near me. Oh, and dear. although they were very cute, they also spent the entire time either shouting or crying. So yeah. I just didn't end up sleeping the whole flight. Oh, that's my worst nightmare. Yeah, it was. Being it next was to a toddler. Yeah, it was, um, you know, totally understandable. Mm, um, of course. But yes, it, it did mean I couldn't sleep at all. So I have had to recover from jet lag for a few days. As I said, it's my worst nightmare, but I feel for the parents. I mean, what can we do? Oh, the so much. Babies yeah. will be babies. Oh, know. exactly. Samantha is the New York Times and Sunday Times bestselling author of the Bone Season series. Her work has been translated into 26 languages. Her fourth novel, The Priory of the Orange Tree was her first outside of the Bone Series series and was a New York Times bestseller. Intricate and epic, her latest novel, A Day of Falling Night, sweeps readers back to the world of... The Roots of Chaos. The Roots of Chaos. Samantha's helping me here, (laughs) showing us a course of events that shaped her for generations to come. It's a genre that I don't love. Truly, the only time I I kind of read it is when I'm going to talk to someone like you. Mm. But it always entertains me more than I imagine it's going to. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's quite an intimidating uh, genre in many ways because, you know, there's a lot of information to absorb. Often the books are quite long. Um, You're introducing a reader to a whole new world, a whole new magic system a lot of the time. So I can completely understand if people find it uh, a slightly daunting genre to read. I, um, I grew up as a bookseller. Well, you know, when I finished school, I started book selling. Actually, I, I, I've said this before. I thought I wanted to be a teacher and then I realised I didn't really like children all that much. So I changed over and it was the best move ever. But back in the day when I was working on the shop floor, there wasn't that YA genre. Right, yeah. Yeah, so you had kids reading and when they got to, you know, particularly good readers, they get to a certain age and where do you take them from there? You Mm -hmm. know, is it Tom Clancy? Is it, you know, there was that gap and there was no such thing, I think, back then as YA. But fantasy was a genre that they loved and fantasy was a transition genre and then so many, you know, young people stuck to it. And I do think, I mean, I know many people read fantasy, but I do think you hook them in at at teenagehood. Do you think? 
Um, it's an interesting question in terms of the age range for these books because mm. I've always written them as adult and I think particularly with the Roots of Chaos books they are quite distinctly adult in terms mm. of the ages of the characters. I mean in The Priory of the Orange Tree the characters range from 19 all the way through to 64 in terms of the, the characters, mm. the main characters' ages. And in the new one, well the new one's a little more complicated I suppose because the youngest character is 15 which does lie within the YA age range. I think YA is a something like 12 to 18 which is a pretty big range within mm. you know in itself and plus I mean so many adults read oh YA. yeah of course I mean yeah. it's sort of the official categorization yeah. of YA um so it's it is interesting I've I've always been quite clear that they are not written for teenagers per se I think it's an interesting distinction in terms of I'm really happy if teens want to read my books I mean mm. that's that's great and a lot of teenagers do read them mm. but I think it's it's a very different thing writing specifically for teens and young people versus writing for adults and just having young people be happy to read them. Mm. I think it's when having crossover potential. Because, you know, if I... I don't want to say these books are for teens because then there is some more adult content mm. in them as well. So mm. it's yeah, it's definitely a, it's an interesting well, conversation. Well, that's what I was alluding to, too, yeah. because, you know, that YA genre wasn't there back then. So they, right. they went to adult books yes. and fantasy was one of them. Right, you yeah, know, yeah. I remember selling oh, just so many. I can't remember the authors now, but it was it's quite interesting, particularly the older young readers, if you like. Mm. I've got to say, I, I didn't expect you to be as young as you are with the body of work that oh, you I'm, had. I'm not that young anymore. <laughs> so I want to go back to where it all started. Of tell course. me tell me um, the, the arc of your career so far. Well, I did start very young, which is why I have an unusually high number of books at the age I am. So I'm currently 31 yeah. and um, it's been, this is actually my 10th year of being a published author. So my wow. first book was published in 2013 when I was 21. And it was interesting. So I I started writing very young. As a full-time hobby, I would say I was writing since I was about 12. Yeah. I wrote, you know, a couple of little books. Like I wrote a book when I was kind of nine or 10, which I, I'm saying book in kind of inverted commas. It probably doesn't meet the, uh, the word count necessary for a book, more like a novella, but it was called Inferno. And it was about dragons in Area 51, which I still think is kind of a cool concept. Maybe mm. I'll go back to it one day. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I wrote a couple of books. Then I, the first time I seriously wrote a novel was when I was 15. I wrote this really long novel called Aurora, which was 200,000 words long or something like that. Wow. Yeah, it was really long. And I would write that kind would of... Would you do that before or after school? Where would you fit that in? Well, that's the thing. I was writing very much around school. And I remember my mum, it used to drive her spare because, you know, she she was pretty convinced that you know, I had a really great academic career ahead of me and that I would be able to, you know, hopefully get into a good university. And she wanted me to focus on my studies, but she could also see that I loved writing. But it's, it's difficult for parents, I think, because, you know, writing is such an unpredictable career. Like there's no certainty that you're going to be able to get a book deal. It depends on so many things outside your own talent. Oh, I, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think there are very few authors that I have interviewed who thought at that age that they would be an author or a writer. Yeah. They didn't even think it was imaginable. But in that time, were you also reading prolifically? I was, I was reading a lot, yeah. I mean, obviously to, for school to some extent because I did mm. English literature like, you know, obviously many students do. But yeah, I was I was reading a lot. 
Um, but most of my spare time at that point in my life was taken up by writing. I mean, it would get to the point that I was writing every single second I could around my homework. I was writing into the night up until four in the morning to the point that my parents were having to listen for the sound of the keyboard. They actually confiscated the keyboard at one point because I, it was like when I was studying for my A-levels and my GCSEs, they would they literally confiscated the keyboard at night because they knew I would stay up and exhaust myself. But then I found out about the accessible keyboard on the computer that you can just get on the screen and oh. you can type with the mouse. <laughs> so then they had to start listening for the click of the mouse. Um, but yeah, I was really determined to always write and I was... Uh, really stretching myself quite thin at that point in my life because I was trying to study and you know I wanted to go to Oxford which requires pretty good grades as well so I was yeah it was a very intense period of my life when I was working on Aurora. I can imagine and what about your friends at that age? I mean don't all 15 year olds want to be out and about hanging with their... Not me. Their, not you. Yeah. <laughs> no I was a pretty introverted kid. I mean I had I had friends who were supportive of it and I also had a part-time job as well. I, I worked as a receptionist at a local health club for some of my teen years as well. So there was quite a lot happening. But I was never really a particularly social person. I kind of fit into the classic introverted author stereotype. I think I've grown into slightly more of an extrovert in the last few years, um, just in terms of doing, you know, a lot of public engagements and that sort of thing. But when I was a teenager, I was excruciatingly shy. I was I wasn't really a going out clubbing or that kind of person. Right. So I yeah, all of my free time just went on writing really. Um, and so you finished Aurora and did. did you show it to anyone? I did. I actually tried to get it published. I was, At I was, 15? I think I was probably maybe 17 when I tried to get it published. I was working on it for a few years. Love and, your confidence. Well, yeah, <laughs> it was a misplaced confidence as it turned out. But I, you know, I, I did everything I hoped was right. You know, I printed the manuscript off. I put it in the regulation brown envelope and I sent the first three chapters to agents all across London. I got the writers and artists yearbook and I was looking up, you know, which agents were looking for fantasy, that sort of thing. And obviously I was rejected across the board. And there was one agent was willing to basically meet me and he said that he thought I had some talent, but it just wasn't his kind of book. And I was a little bit cheeky and I, I decided that if I couldn't be an author, I really wanted to work in publishing. And I said to him, like, is there any chance I could do an internship with you? Because I'd love to see, you know, behind the scenes at the agency, like what makes an agent want to book, how agencies work, that sort of thing. And I ended up working for him for a couple of weeks in 2011. Yeah, I mean that's great experience. Yeah, which and that was um in my just after my first year of university. Mm. So it was in the summer between my first and second years. Yeah. Okay. So um did you get into Oxford? I did get into Oxford, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, just by the skin of my teeth, I was I had uh, I had chosen some I'd chosen to do Spanish, which was a subject that I, you know, I, I, I speak, I used to speak relatively good Spanish, but it was a very difficult subject. You know, mm. you had to write essays in the language and all the oral exams and stuff, but I did just about manage to scrape in, yes. Yeah, wow. Okay, so tell me how you went from there to your first published book. Right, so while I was at the agency, um, the agency was based in a district called Seven Dials, which is in Covent Garden in central London. And while I was walking around, I noticed it's quite a new agey district. So there's a lot of, you know, shops that sell crystal balls and tarot yes. cards and offer psychic readings, that sort of thing. And I thought, huh, wouldn't it be interesting to have a magic system based on clairvoyance and divination? And I hadn't really seen anything like that before. It just seemed a little bit different from witches and wizards, but similar enough that it still sounded appealing, but I just thought it could be quite an interesting premise to build on. And while I was kind of 
percolating this idea in my mind. I was sitting in the office one day and I suddenly heard this voice in my head, very distinct Irish accent, saying, I like to imagine there were more of us in the beginning, which is the first line of the bone season and remains so now. And I just knew this character straight away. I knew who this character was. And that was Paige, the protagonist of the bone season. And once I had the basic premise and the character... I just went away and started frantically writing and I felt possessed by this idea. Like I, even with Aurora, I just never felt this kind of connection to a story. And I went back to university and it just poured out of me this over about six months. I just wrote this first draft of The Bone Season. And I really didn't think, I, I was lacking confidence after Aurora. I thought maybe I wasn't, you know, as as, uh, as good a writer as I was hoping. And uh, Lacking confidence that at 17 you weren't published? I was, uh, how old was I by that point? I was yeah. uh, 19 by that yeah, point. Sorry, I'm right. not explaining the timeline yeah. very well. But um, yeah, so I was 19 and just going into my second year of university by this point. And uh, at my college, I went to St Anne's College in Oxford, and we were really lucky that we were visited by the Scottish author Ali Smith, and she was there as a visiting professor of comparative literature. And she basically offered, since she was a published author, to look at students' writing and to give some oh, feedback very on generous. it. It was very generous of her. She's a really nice lady. And... I was thinking, okay, this is terrifying because Ali had a reputation for being very honest mm-hmm. <laughs> and I knew I needed that, but I was also terrified of it mm-hmm. because I love this idea mm-hmm. so much. Had you at that stage had any of your work edited, even by friends? No. I've, no. I mean, my okay. friends had sometimes read my work, right. but it was not not kind of like professional beta reading or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, because that's a different experience entirely. Very much it? so. This, this, is, this was me very much kind of laying my heart on the table and expecting mm-hmm. it to be punched. <laughs> so I went to, I remember kind of, I said, the first chapter of the bone season to Ali and she called me into the office and I thought oh my gosh she's gonna tell me I'm a terrible writer and my dream is going to be broken all over again and I sat down and she pretty much just said this is really wonderful you should send it to an agent and I was so shocked that I couldn't speak for a second and I, 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 you know, she took me through some things she really liked about it. She had like a couple of small points of improvement, but I stumbled out of the office and I remember calling my mum and just saying like, mum, a real published author has said that, you know, I have some real potential Ooh. as a writer. And so I contacted the agent I had worked for and I didn't expect him to take the book on because he didn't really do fantasy on the whole. He does mm-hmm. more contemporary sort Yeah, of they stuff. tend to have specialisations. Yeah, his, his specialisation is not fantasy. So I said to him, look, I, I know this isn't your cup of tea, but would you mind just having a look at it and maybe recommending some agents who might like it? And he said, sure, I will. And then he kept sending me these little updates like, oh, I like this. And then yeah. I really like this. And I thought, OK, this is strange because I'd never had this kind of reaction to my work yeah. before from an agent. And um, he finally said can you come into London? I'd love to have a chat. And I thought, okay, this is really strange. So I, you know, I, I went back to London and I went to the office and he said, I think this is really wonderful. I'd like to represent this. And that really shocked me because yeah. again, he was not an agent who did fantasy. And I was just, well, of course I said yes. Yeah. And then he, he pitched it to a few publishing houses and uh, we had, you know, quite a few interested responses, but Bloomsbury came back with a really, you know, enthusiastic response. And they're good at fantasy. Yeah, they they really yeah. are. And uh, the ed- wonderful editor, Alexandra Pringle, wanted it. And I was, again, of course I said yes. And I just remember going into the office and the whole team came out and they were talking about, you know, how they'd missed their trains because they were, you know, so oh, intensely wow. wrapped up in the bone season. So it went from me feeling like I was knocking on all these closed doors to suddenly all the doors flying open. 
And then I had the most uh, intense two years of my life after that, I would say. Um, so you were 21? I was 20 when I signed with Bloomsbury. Right. So I signed in Bloomsbury in April 2012, which, yeah. and I was 20 at that point. Yeah. So, I mean, it, and you know this and I know this, I mean, how rare that is. Oh, so, well, I didn't realise it at the time. I thought you it didn't. was normal. Right. You know, well, I didn't know anyone in the industry was the thing. Yeah. I think a lot of people nowadays, um, for example, there's a really strong writing community on Twitter. And I think yeah. a lot of people who become published authors often come into it through communities like that. Yes. So they know what's normal. They already know people in the industry. I didn't. I was mm. totally unaware of what was normal. Mm. Hmm. Because in a sense that you haven't been anything else other than an author in no. terms of career, that's unusual. That is unusual, yes, especially to come, you know, literally have a deal while you're still at university. Yeah. And the reaction that followed my book deal was so very unusual and I really didn't know what to do with it at all. So I think there was an interest you were in young. I was young and that was that the interest in the media was largely focused on my age. So yeah. The Sunday Times did an interview with me and they titled it something like Next J.K. Rowling Gets Book Deal. And of course, they meant it in a fairly you know, mm. basic way. You know, J.K. Rowling and I are both published by the same publishing mm. house. We both have seven book fantasy series. So it was just a, it's like how you might call a promising footballer the next David Beckham. Mm. You know, it's not necessarily meant that seriously. Mm. But that suddenly became my tag, <laughs> the next mm-hmm. J.K. Rowling. And suddenly there was this media explosion and this very shy, you know, barely out of her teens kid. I mean, I barely got my braces off at this point. Mm-hmm. Was I was suddenly on TV. I was doing live interviews. I was talking to newspapers. And it was, I was doing things that, you know, you can't even imagine at that age. I was doing photo shoots for Vogue magazine and the New York Times magazine. And it was just this explosion of interest. Had you been published then? Um, no, no, this was no, before anyone had even read the book. Up, yeah. it, was, it was just this interest in me because I was so young and had this huge deal and I didn't really know how to cope with it because I, it wasn't even about the book really, it was about me personally and yeah. the level of intense interest, I just ended up, my mental health just started to crumble under that degree of pressure. Oh, right, I'm really sorry to hear that. Oh, no, no, it's fine. It's, I mean, I think it was mm. inevitable in mm. some ways. You know, I was mm. trying to do my degree at the same mm. time I was doing all of this stuff that, you know, is arguably wonderful. Mm. But then for me, you know, doing something like Vogue magazine, it was yeah. it was actually quite off-putting and strange. You know, I yeah. was... And I think, you know, I think there's a whole conversation to be had about young women in media mm. particularly. You oh, know, the, speak to the actors. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I did a mm. lot of, you know, the, the photo shoots, for example, I just felt like my... I was having stuff just put on my body to be mm. sold in a way mm. it was it was but anyway there's a lot of complicated feelings mm. around that everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule and of course the cost well better help can solve those problems it's totally online and built around your schedule it's surprisingly affordable too connect with a credentialed therapist by phone video or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, a lot of authors talk to me about their first book and they talk about the innocence of writing a first book because you're writing it yourself, you're writing it, you know, at your own pace, you're writing it, it takes two years, three years, five years, whatever. Um, And then when you get to your second, the whole world is watching, it's different, or the publisher is watching. And they often tell me that that first book experience, you never get back again. Mm. And that's unusual for you because you didn't have that quietness of writing it. No, 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 I really didn't. I mean, I suppose arguably when I was drafting it, I had the quiet, but yes, the those the years because I asked Bloomsbury if they could publish the book after I finished my degree so there was this gap between April 2012 and it was eventually published in August 2013 but that gap in the middle was just such an intense period I could not I I mean I realize it was very much a double-edged sword because I know that if that hadn't happened Mm. I would not have become an instant bestseller probably because that's really rare for a debut I was an instant New York Times bestseller because Mm. of that media interest And I recognised that I was very lucky to have that. At the same time, it was so much pressure. It was so much Mm, intensity fixed on me personally. Mm. And I remember, you know, interviewers saying to me, how does it feel to be the next J.K. Rowling when I wasn't even near being published? People had Mm. not read this book. And even after I was published and the bone season, like I said, was pretty much an instant success because of this media interest. I remember I did an interview, I think it was with the BBC, and they said something like, well, congratulations on the bone season selling so well. And I was like, oh, thank you. It's really exciting. And then she said something like, not as well as Harry Potter, though. And oh. I, was, I was thinking, but I never thought it was going to sell as well as Harry of Potter. It was, it was selling. It was selling this idea that was not possible. Mm. You know, there is. It's so rare for you know there to be something like Harry Potter, such yeah. a phenomenon. I just want to say something, you know, about that promotional period, and mm. you know, acknowledging completely how tough that is for you, and you saying that it, you know, probably was part of this, the success of uh, of the series. I agree with that to a certain point, but I have been in this business long enough to know that if the story doesn't carry it, nothing can help it. Oh, yeah, sure. But then, you know, you it know, was a good story. I, well, I, I hope so. I mean, it's a story I still love now. Yeah. I mean, I've, um, I have, you know, a lot of feelings about my debut and I've actually revised it, which yeah. I'm, I'm sure we'll cover in a bit. But, yeah, it's. I mean, it's, I'm not saying that, you know, yeah. I, the story didn't have potential, but I do think that success in publishing is a combination of talent as one thing. But there's also timing, there's luck, yes, there's yeah. interest, there's a lot of factors that come together to make a book a success, mm. not all of which are in your control. Mm. Talk to me about the editorial process of your first book. Okay, thinking back 10 years. Um, I just, I I think the editorial process, so the editors I worked with were utterly fantastic. So Mm. my my main editors for The Bone Season were Alexandra Pringle, who I've mentioned, and Alexa von Hirschberg, who I think are two of the absolute best in the business. Um, Alexandra recently retired, but she was such a, she is just such a matriarch of the publishing world. It was a real privilege to work with her. Mm. And I don't, to be honest, the, a lot of the editorial process is something of a blur in my head because mm. I was having to fit editing around my degree. Mm. And that was really tough because, you know, mm. the 
and all your other commitments. Right, and Oxford has these particularly short terms and they're very intense work terms. So you're doing pretty much one essay a week for eight weeks at a time and then going home, which is uh, slightly different to some other universities in the UK. And I just remember being... I mean, it was it was interesting to, you know, to work with a professional editor. It was my dream come true in some ways. But I think that I was not able to fully focus on it and that it would have been better if... I feel very lucky that now I'm a full-time author so I don't have to pull my focus mm. in two different directions like that. I like to be quite immersed in what I'm doing. Mm. And how do you tackle the writing process? What does your a day look like? Um, when you're not on tour. Yes, yeah. the, the tour is, is unusual. Um, a classic writing day, I suppose. I'll get up at maybe seven. Um, I'm not a fantastic morning writer. I tend to, My brain tends to come awake a bit later in the day, so I use the mornings to do the general admin associated with being an author. Mm-hmm. And in the afternoon, I will just go ahead and write. Um, I hope that the words flow. I don't have a word count I try to hit every day. I, I, that's just not... A method that works for me particularly well. Normally, if I'm going to set myself a goal, I'll set myself something like, you know, finish chapter 19 by the end of today. Mm. So that's the kind of thing I tend to work towards rather than a word count. Um, I don't necessarily write every day because I am chronically ill. I have migraines. So mm-hmm. some oh, days... Oh, no, it's okay. Don't worry. Yeah. I'm, I'm very happy to talk about it. I think it's quite an important thing to, yeah. to talk about because... I do see it's a some hidden disease. Isn't it is. It, it, it is. It's invisible. It's, yeah. it's not very well understood. I think no. a lot. I think a lot of people just think it's a headache. It's actually a yeah. pretty complex neurological condition. My niece suffers it. It's terrible. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's rough. Um, and I, you know, I've, I'm lucky that again that I work full time and I, I'm able to support myself with it. Yeah. Um, but it does mean that when I see authors saying things like "you have to write a thousand words a day to be an author" or something prescriptive like mm. that, that does frustrate me a little bit mm. because I don't write, you know, a thousand words a day. Mm. I can't always write every day. But yeah, so if I'm if I'm on a particularly tight deadline, I have been known to work something like 17 hours at a time, but wow. that's uh, not a good idea to do long term. But yeah, I probably I probably try to write at least 8 hours a day and just obviously mm. there's a degree of planning and thinking involved as well. It might not always be just pure words coming out of me. It might be, you know, trying to figure out a plot point or, you know, working on a world building Mm. aspect. And do you write at home or do you go to a space? I do tend to write at home so mm. I have a, a home office. I Sometimes I will go to a cafe. I generally work best at home but during the pandemic I actually mm. realised that I like the freedom to go elsewhere because when I was stuck just working at home I felt like my brain was stagnating mm. in some way I think sometimes I just need to wake it up by going to a cafe mm. or just changing I think my environment we were all kind of stagnant in some way over that yeah time. it was just it trying was, to figure it out it was know? a weird period because I live on my own and I've always you know I choose mm. to live on my own it's something I've, mm. I've you know very intentionally gone into but I think that when I decided to live on my own I did not think I would be forced to never see anyone and it was quite a while before the UK government bought in the bubbling rule where people who lived on their own could join another Mm -hmm. family's bubble. Mm -hmm. So that was a tough period. Oh, I hear you. I live on my own too, by Mm. choice. And um, I don't think I've ever felt, and I'm a lot older than you, and in all that time, I'd never, ever felt lonely. Mm. Then COVID hit, yeah. Yeah, it was the same. I've really, I've always been very happy by myself. I think because I have, especially because I have quite an intense imagination, Mm. I feel like I'm never... (laughs) I want to talk about that. (laughs) I know, I'm never, I feel like I'm never really alone because, you know, I always have these other voices 
in my head, the voices of the characters. Mm. But yeah, I did feel lonely for that mm. time because there was just weeks and weeks mm. of not seeing anyone. It was mm. weeks my parents lived very close to me at that point and we were literally about a, a street away from each other and we just couldn't see each mm. other. Mm. Really tough. Okay, I want to talk about your imagination. I want to talk about the mind of a fantasy writer because often when I'm talking to, say, you know, um, fiction writers, whether it be crime or romance or, or any story... They talk to me about how they live with the story, mm. you know, even when you're not working, even when you're not putting it down, it is always there. So is it that you live in an alternate world almost all of the time? Describe it to me. The way I've talked about this in the past is I describe it as layers of reality that I can switch between. So yeah. for me, there is a layer of my mind that is devoted to the bone season. There's another layer of my mind that's devoted to the roots of chaos books and I can switch between them. I would say there is not an hour that passes in a day and hasn't been for the last 10 years that I haven't thought about the bone season. Like yeah, it's been, wow. it is this constant undercurrent in my life that I'm always thinking about it, especially because it's partly set, well, it is set in an alternate version of our world. So whenever I'm in any place, any city, I'm imagining it as that place filtered through the lens of the bone season. Like when I used to walk through Paris, I would think, oh, this is what Paris would look like if it was in the bone season world. And that ended up going into the fourth book. But, you know, I could, you know, I was literally just walking on a beach uh, in the Gold Coast a couple of days ago. I was thinking, huh, this is giving me bone season vibes. (laughs) And um, it's also true of the roots of chaos. I think about that a lot, but because they're standalones, they're slightly more boxed off in my head. Whereas the bone season is an ongoing series I've been working on for 10 years. So It just always is with me in some way. But yeah, I can very much suddenly switch my head into those different layers and modes. And I've been asked by readers before, you know, do you have tons of notes to keep your worlds organised in your head? And I said, I don't really. I just switch into the different mode. And my, it's like a, that part of my brain lights up and I remember wow. everything. Mm. Yeah. So you don't have like a family tree or, you know, a, a kind of a story tree happening? It, mostly depends if it involves numbers or not. If yeah. it involves numbers, I have to write it down. I am not a numerical person. Oh, yeah. I, do I, not, you. <laughs> I do not do well with numbers to the point where um, there is actually a typo in a day of fallen night where I put the wrong century because my brain just does mm. not cope with numbers. I can't remember. Did any readers all. pick that up? Oh, I'm quite confident they have. Because <laughs> they're um, good, aren't they? I think I caught it for the UK edition. So I think I think possibly, if I think the Aussie edition might be the UK edition in terms of the the, pay, the actual content. So hopefully it's not in there, but it's definitely in the US edition. Um, but yeah, if it, if it involves numbers, so something like a family tree, for example, um, there's this long line of queens in the Roots of Chaos books. I did have to write that down because I needed to visualise when each queen lived and died. So I knew what what number of queen we had got to because you know there's Sabra and the ninth so I need to figure out when Sabra and the sixth and seventh were around so if it involves numbers yes I have to write it down I have to get that out of my head and visualize it mostly though I don't need tons of notes I just remember okay so um talk to me about TikTok Oh, yes. <laughs> um, well, I'm not really on TikTok myself. I do have a TikTok account and I have made maybe 20 videos over quite a long time. Um, unfortunately, I do just don't really feel I'm particularly videogenic. I don't really like looking at my face on camera. And but your readers like it. My readers like TikTok, yes. I'm, I'm very grateful for TikTok because I know that it's part of this huge part of the success of the Roots of Chaos books. I actually didn't understand what was happening initially because yeah. we suddenly had this big spike in sales and Priory you know was you know relatively successful from the beginning again it was a New York Times bestseller it was a Sunday Times bestseller so it certainly hadn't you know not got any attention but 
suddenly it was everywhere. It was on tables in bookshops. It was being talked about in a way I'd never seen it be talked about before. And I was able to trace it to TikTok, partly actually because of Adam Silvera, whose books have been very popular on there. Um, He's the author of uh, They Both Die at the End. And I saw that his books had, one of that particular book had come out a few years ago. And suddenly it was on top of all the bestseller lists. And that's quite unusual to see a book mm-hmm. that is not a recent book suddenly hit the top of all the bestsellers. Mm-hmm. And I actually said to him, like, oh, you know, congratulations. And he said, oh, it's TikTok. And that's when I was aware of that as this new force in the publishing industry. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for the fact that it picked up interest on there, especially because I thought it was going to be quite a niche book yeah. in terms of, A, it's massive, which is, you know, can be quite intimidating. Um, it's also very gay. And yeah. when I, at the time of me writing Priory, it felt like much more of a risk to write a lesbian book. It, I felt Bloomsbury never treated it this way at all. They they were, they were never tried to make me take that content out of it. But I didn't know if that was going to be popular with mm. many readers. Absolutely. I, I wasn't sure if it was going to have mass market appeal. And I, I was really shocked when, you know, happily shocked mm. when, when it ended up being such a TikTok phenomenon. Yeah. I feel, um, you know, and, and in my experience over the years, I've been doing this for a long time, and I started off as a bookseller, as I said earlier, very often the story just reaches those people that visit bookstores or those people that, you know, read, look at a bestseller list. And that's a small number of people, mm. you know, it's not, and it is, if you know what I mean. And I think we as book people, we as readers, we as publishers have always just spoken to that market and not for any other reason other than, you know, they're readers and we're feed, feeding the appetite of story. However, when we get to things like TikTok that's when I think it blows out Mm. and we reach so many people that perhaps haven't read a book before. Mm. And, you know, fantasy particularly has really reached people that aren't traditional book readers. And that's fantastic. Yeah, it's really great. I think it's it's, it's been quite amazing to see... The, the ripples it's cast over yeah, the last few and years. it's just a matter of discovery and communication and telling them about. Yeah, and getting uh, to share your reactions with other people. I think that was really important, especially mm. with, with Adam's books, for example, their contemporary fiction, but mm. the the emotional reaction that people had to them, I feel like there was a lot of sharing, you know, the tears streaming down your face and the, right. the passion you're experiencing for the book. And I think it's really lovely that they get to share that. As much as I don't like being on camera and showing my face, I think yeah. it's, it is a lovely way for people to connect with one another in a, in a really personal way. And isn't it wonderful how now readers can connect with writers? Yeah, I mean, very you much. Know, so, many ne- so much negativity around social media, and rightly so, Yeah, but I, so many positives as well. Very much so. I mean, I've, I've largely withdrawn from social media myself now, so I used to have uh, Twitter and basically every social mm. media platform. I found Twitter very, very difficult mm. for my mental health. Mm. I've stayed on there for about 10 years, and I bitterly regret having stayed on there for so long, mm. I must say. I think I really did a lot of damage to my mental health I think it just I think there there is potential for discussion on there but I think it is a platform that ultimately because of the necessity of keeping your words concise on there it means I think it's not a platform designed for complicated or nuanced Mm. discussion at Mm. all and that leads to a lot of just not particularly great interactions Mm. and it's frustrating because often things talked about on there are really worthwhile I just don't think the platform lends itself to conversation especially well because of the need to keep your tweets short Mm. and even if you write a long thread 
people are often only going to read the first tweet. Mm. So it, to me, there's a lot of pressure on that small number of words. And ultimately, I feel very glad I've withdrawn from there now. Mm. I'm, I, but I'm, even the review process, you know, when all those, uh, you know, if I get a negative review about the podcast, I'm brokenhearted usually. <laughs> but even that is so shallow in a way, you know. It's not really a discussion about what we were talking about. No, it's it's a frustrating platform, Twitter. I'm, I'm, I, yeah. I know a lot of authors feel they have to stay on there in, or, in order yeah. to, you know, be able to talk about their books. But for me, I feel just, I just couldn't do it anymore. Mm. I, I reached the end of my tether and mm. now I'm just on Instagram, which yeah. I find to generally be a calmer platform and I, I use it to try to promote my love of books in general. Yeah, I love Instagram. I'm always on it. Yeah. I'm a bread maker and... I share a lot of bread recipes as well. <laughs> Samantha, what a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming in to speak with us today. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, it's lovely to have been able to do it in person. <laughs> if you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.